So welcome, I'm coming back to you again from the American Geophysical Union Conference here in Washington, D.C. on the last day of the conference, so I think it feels like we've been here for a month. And joining me today is Ben Cook from NASA Goddard Institute of Space Studies. Ben, would you like to tell, say hello, tell the folks what you do? And hello, um, you know, my name is Ben and I'm a climate scientist at NASA and uh, I spend most of my time thinking about drought and why droughts happen, how climate change is going to affect droughts in the future, and what this might mean for people and ecosystems. So, are droughts a big deal? Scratchy <laughs> <laughs> uh, leading questions. Like, yeah. You, you should follow Ben on, on Twitter if you don't. It's at Dusty Bowl, like D-U-S-T-Y-B-O-W-L. But um, tell, us, tell us why drought. Yeah, why I, think, I, think, I think droughts are a really big deal, and... You know, especially from a climate change perspective, because on a certain level, or in a lot of areas anyway, you know, if it gets a bit warmer, that's something that a lot of people, you know, can adapt to. Yeah. You know, you can, um, you know, turn up the AC a little bit, or you know, stay in the shade, or drink a little bit more water um, <laughs> if the water is available. Um, yeah. But you know, for a lot of areas, you know, life really is about water and how much water is available, um, and you know, in areas like the Western United States or the Mediterranean um, or Southern Africa or parts of Australia where the amount of water is not huge mm -hmm. and where variability is really high, uh, droughts can have really big impacts on, on people and ecosystems um, in a lot of different ways. So how much of, you know, particularly like seeing like the, the fires in California now, like how much of that is... Is that pretty much all drought driven or is that like what is kind of the drought climate feedback to that? So, so now I'm going to um, destroy my credibility by taking back something I said before about <laughs> temperature. Um, well, because you're, you're, a you're a global climate scientist though, right? Yeah, no, yeah, that's, so that's I mean, true. Like, I, you know, I, I ask questions I, for very much at like a field or regional scale. So no, go ahead. Um, but no, I mean, you know, so fires, right, are you know, part of drought, but it's a lot more complicated, right? Because it depends on basically to get a fire, I mean, you need an ignition source, and that can come from lightning and, and a lot of different yeah. human activities, right? Um, but in order to get a fire to really spread, you need fuel, and you need to dry that fuel out. And that okay. makes it easy to, to ignite. Um, so, you know, drought can play a role by drying that fuel out, um, but also temperature can. Yeah. Um, and this is something we're seeing that's actually related to climate change impacts on drought, which is that it's not just about precipitation, about mm -hmm. rain and snow. Uh, a lot of it is about... Um, you know, the temperature, which can dry out the surface by increasing evaporative losses, um, stressing out vegetation, uh, and that becomes a kind of additional factor that can you know, dry out the surface, intensify drought, and make like these fires you know, that have yeah. been happening in California um, uh, spread a lot more and become a lot bigger. And that, if you coupled with, you know, I guess decades of fire suppression and just building up giant fuel loads and they dry them out, it's just like, yeah, so this is a really interesting thing, actually, about Western U.S. is the reason we find such a strong climate change signal. Like, mm -hmm. we can see this, like, you know, temperatures have been going up, fires have been getting bigger, and there's yeah. a direct relationship there. But the interesting thing is that the reason is that there is such a strong climate change signal is because uh, of fire suppression, which has basically removed the fuel limitation. Okay. So because of this, like, long history of fire suppression, like, we haven't had small fires clearing out the landscape. And so... We've got lots of fuel on the, on the landscape, and so all you need now is the right weather, the right climate conditions, like wow. a drought, like a really hot summer. Um, and then when the fire starts, these things just go 
gangbusters and um, can be huge and intense, um, as we've seen over this last summer in places like yeah. California um, and the Pacific Northwest and, and, and Canada as well. This is crazy. So, so how did you get interested in, in drought work in the beginning? Yeah, it's... I think it's probably because I've always really loved the western United States. Okay. So starting in eighth grade, I used to go out there like every summer with my father. You know, I grew up on Long Island, which, you know, is very different from yeah. the western United States. <laughs> you know, and it just feels very different. And, and it kind of blew my mind that there was this whole, you know, half of the country that looks so different from where I'd spent at that time, like 13 years of my life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as I was kind of finishing my... PhD, which was in just general climate modeling, um, you know, I was thinking about like, well, like, you know, what are the issues mm-hmm. in the Western United States that people are, you know, going to care about related to climate, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know, certainly water and drought really stuck out as, as one in particular. Um, and so, yeah, so that kind of started my whole like career trajectory after, you know, starting with my postdoc to kind of look mm-hmm. at, you know, some of these drought events and, you know, I've just kind of been on that track ever since. Interesting. So, um, this is something I'm, I'm curious about is that I, you know, I recently just kind of started working with folks, um, you know, at NASA and in remote sensing, like doing like these big global scale things. Like I have no background in that. Right. And so it's been kind of interesting to me to learn how to do that. And it's always like when you, um, you see us, you need to write papers, particularly if you want to write high impact papers, people are wanting to see like these, you know, how does this scale up? How does this have like global implications? So I'm coming at it from like a bottom to you know, top perspective, but I'm curious when you're coming at it from more top perspective, mm-hmm. like, do you do a lot of work with, or when you're just doing, are you like just in model world? I guess I'm asking the question. I'm just curious like yeah. how this world works. I'm trying to learn more about it. Yeah. I'm sure other people would be too. Yeah. So, you know, so I, you know, as a climate scientist, you know, most of my field work is on a computer, right? And so yeah. this involves models, like analyzing model runs and yeah. and and, um, uh, and and designing model experiments to, to kind of ask questions. Um, but at least for myself, all my kind of modeling work is, you know, I always really try to ground it in reality. So okay. I use lots of these kind of global observational data sets. I use okay. a lot of paleoclimate reconstructions. Okay. Um, which to all provide kind of an empirical constraint for interpreting the models, right? So, okay. you know, the way I kind of like to approach things is, okay, like, you know, we have these observations. You know, now we have, like, tons. We have lots of remote sensing observations, lots of reanalyses, you know, that are, that are global, and, and lots of data sets that go back in time um, yeah. pretty far. And so you can kind of analyze those things, and you might see something interesting. Um, but fundamentally, you, can't, you can only kind of conjecture about mechanisms, by analyzing these data sets. Like, you can't really test that. Yeah. Uh, and that, to me, is kind of where models come in in a kind of complementary sense. Because now we can go to these models and we can manipulate things. Yeah. Or, um, you know, the models oftentimes have information about processes, at least within model world, that we don't have in the real world. Okay. And so we can use these models in a complementary sense to be like, okay, well, what are the mechanisms? What are the dynamics that seem to best explain this event that we're observing in the real world? Okay. Um, and I think that's kind of a, a kind of powerful approach that leverages the strengths of, yeah. of both of those things. Okay, so if you, the dream data set that you could have like maybe like a reasonable one that doesn't exist, but you, if you could have it, like that would 
answer the big question you have? I mean, so, you know, a lot of the struggle with studying drought is a lot of the things we care about in terms of drought, we don't have direct observations of, or they're sparse, right? So, you know, we have lots of precipitation data sets, right? Um, Yeah, so many. Uh, yeah, so many, right? And there's all sorts of uncertainties. And, um, yeah, exactly. But there's a lot of, like, that yeah. data available, you know, either at a single location or, you know, globally. And, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of this data goes back decades, right? Yeah. Um, but drought is not just precipitation. Drought is also soil moisture. Drought is runoff and stream yeah. flow. And, and, you know, those sorts of things, we just don't have really large-scale, long-term data on. You know, we have some, you know, you'll you'll find little, like, um, you know, smaller data sets kind of here and there. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to study something at, like, the regional scale or the global scale, uh, it's much more difficult because, uh, you know, we can kind of infer what we think the soil moisture runoff might be, but we don't have the direct data sets. Um, And so that's the kind of data that's really the kind of the holy grail is actually having really well-constrained, large-scale estimates of soil moisture and runoff um, and groundwater. Uh, and that's improving now, especially with the satellite record, which allows us yeah. to kind of start to fill in these things. Um, but, you know, I think there's still, you know, we, you know, we need more data, you know? <laughs> where, where do you have, where in the globe is, is most underrepresented in this data set? Because I know from like a forestry perspective, we have you know, major problems in the tropics and, you know, particularly really anywhere in the southern hemisphere in general. But. Tropics, um, Africa. Okay. Um, you know, tropical South America. So it's kind of the same story yeah. everywhere. No, and, and this is the thing. It's like, you know, we we understand, you know, we have a pretty good understanding of kind of drought variability and and impacts in, like, North America and Europe and Australia and even much of Asia. Um, yeah. But there's a lot of these other areas that in particular have very vulnerable populations that, you know, like, for example, East Africa, right, has been going through a series of droughts. And it's very difficult to, to kind of you know, answer the question, well, has climate change made these droughts worse? Because we lack long-term data to provide us a kind of baseline against which to evaluate these events, right? Um, And so, yeah, so those are the kind of areas where, you know, having more of this data would be very, very helpful. So you've put together or I assume finished the process of writing this book because it's coming out very soon, right? Yes, so the last thing I have, I have the proof yeah. And so it's like last call. Like I have to go through, make any final, very minor changes Excellent. because they get very mad at me if I like change the if I, they have to change the, the typeset <laughs> uh, and then make the the index. So plug plug the book. What is what's the title? Yeah. When so it um, it's Columbia University Press. It's coming out in probably March or April. Um, it's going to be forty bucks. So uh, affordable, relatively anyway. Um, but it's, uh, it's called Drought, an Interdisciplinary Perspective. Uh, and kind of my goal behind this book was, you know, drought is a is kind of a weird concept. Because yeah. it really does, like, there's lots of, you can have five people sitting around a table talking about their drought research that's all completely different, okay. right? You know, you can be a uh, meteorologist studying drought from a precipitation perspective, right? Or you could be a hydrologist who's thinking about runoff. You know, or you could be an ecologist who's thinking about how droughts are impacting, you know, ecosystems. And so this particular book was kind of my attempt to provide, you know, kind of a base level kind of introduction to the science of drought, you know. And so, 
you know, it's kind of intended for maybe mid to upper level undergraduates with the idea of like, if you're working in any aspect of environmental science, you can read this book and come away with, um, you know, a pretty good understanding of, you know, major drought concepts and, okay. and how these kind of different pieces fit together. Interesting. So, um, how was this process? I'm just curious. Like, how, <laughs> like, when did this start? Uh, so, probably four years ago. Wow. Okay. With the kind of initial discussion, the proposal, um, and then it was about it's about a year of doing some research, and then another year of very heavy writing, and then this last kind of year was just kind of final edits and figures and things like that. Wow. Um, and it was a uh, you know, I'm excited that it's done, <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's, so, you know, I, I write papers all the time, um, but in, to me, papers are very collaborative, yeah. and so, like, as I'm working on these papers, you know, I'm getting feedback from my co-authors, like, um, you know, making suggestions, and so it's kind of, it's a very different experience from writing a book by yourself, mm-hmm. which is, you know, kind of an isolating experience, and, yeah. you know, you kind of have to make yourself decide to be done, you know, and you'll never be like, you know, you're never going to be happy. It's never perfect. Um, But, you know, done is better than perfect because done is actually, is actually done. Um, Do you, do you follow like some people do with a paper rule? Like they know the paper is done when they absolutely hate it. Can't stand looking at it anymore. And they're like, all right, this must be done. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty close to me, (laughs) you know? So, so are you going to do it again? Is drought too? We'll see how this in the we'll see how this book does, but I, I think I'll need a co-author because uh, the idea of uh, well, you like anything, you know, it's just the things I really like. I think that it came out really well. There's yeah. there's some chapters that, you know, I think I could have done better, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's uh, I think it's you know overall I'm happy with it. I think it's a useful book, and and I think it's the kind of book that at least I can't see any other book on the landscape that kind of fits this niche right a kind of approachable like overview of drought and climate and and all sorts of stuff um so uh so yeah i mean you know we'll we'll see in a couple years (laughs) (laughs) if i want to do a second edition But I know that I know I have heard people independently talking, you know, about this book, knowing that it's coming out. Like, so, you know, you're, you're on Twitter and you've talked about it before. So I know a lot of people are excited. At least oh, in the community, okay. so that'd be good. And I just, it sounds like it's similar to like those, that Primer series, like that. Uh, like Dave Schimmel wrote a book with that one, like on Global. Yeah, from like, the right? Princeton like review. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I think that's is it related or. No, I mean it's like you know it's Columbia University Press, so it's separate, but it's um, you know against the same ideas. Like I didn't want to like. You know, I wanted to be like, okay, like, you know, I mean, you and I both came from graduate departments that were very interdisciplinary, yeah, exactly. right? You know, and, you know, we're all kind of like taking courses in each kind of discipline. And, yeah. you know, that to me was a very kind of formative experience that oh, I think definitely. has, has made me, you know, like a lot of the work I do is interdisciplinary and, and, and I feel that kind of training has allowed me to like really collaborate and communicate with people across disciplines. And so I think there's, I think there's a lot of value in having these sorts of books, right? Where, yeah. you know, maybe somebody's not going to be a drought scientist, but, you know, they want to understand drought a little okay. bit better. And they want to yeah. understand some of this kind of, like, background stuff. Um, and that's kind of what was the goal. 
I also put a table of a bunch of water cycle numbers that I kept having to look up. Like, it's a good sign. So, so I was like, <laughs> I was like, I'm so sick of like tracking this down randomly on like the UN website. Like, I'm oh. just gonna like put the table in the book. That's how. This is how much water people use. <laughs> there we go. So, oh, yeah. if no, so if nothing else, I have that table that I can So you should know that. That's where it is, yeah. I have one of my papers that I have to just constantly... I just put it on my desktop at this point because I can't remember everything that's in one of the tables and I just look it up all the time. Um, so you bring up an interesting point that I'm, I'm realize that in a way I'm struggling with now, this idea of you know, coming from a strong interdisciplinary background of like you know, working you know, where there was like geology people and hydrologists and, eco- and ecologists and within ecologists, there were like multiple types of ecologists. Mm-hmm. You know, and trying to find like a path forward here, and I find it like coming to AGU in particular, that my week gets weird because I have you know either friends or colleagues working in hydrology or global ecology or even like atmospheric science still, along with like biogeosciences where I'm like constantly bouncing back and forth. And now I'm in a biology department, which is fairly hyper focused, mm-hmm. and it's like a different world. But I'm gonna say like, how do you did you navigate not being spread too thin because now like I find myself like I have like these two distinct tracks of research and I'm trying to merge them and like I kind of see a way forward but I also worry that I am always the potential of being spread too thin yeah I mean it's tricky uh, I don't know I, I think you know I guess the way I've always tried to manage this stuff is to to be working on things of kind of varying level of completion right yeah. um so, you know, I'll have, like, you know, typically I might have, like, a paper in review mm-hmm. and another, you know, I'll be kind of, like, midway through another analysis, either as a collaborator or, or yeah. something, and, 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 you know, like, collaborating with other people on some other stuff. So I think it's just a kind of matter of, at least for me anyway, it's just kind of, I don't, I don't know. At the end of the day, I, I think I just, I work with people I like to work with. Yeah, you know, yeah. and that to me is kind of very energizing, you know, and and I think you know we kind of I mean we kind of know if something's a good idea or not. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. like you know, if you spend like a few weeks working on something and like you find you have to have these like these weird tortured kind of like justifications or interpretations, like it's probably a good sign that you should just put that to the side. It's, you know, just trust the intuition. Like this is just too. Yeah, or get like somebody like to give you some feedback on it. And maybe, yeah. I, maybe I think that's the biggest thing for me. You know, that helps my efficiency is, is to be very collaborative. Because yeah, that way exactly. it helps me. Like, you know, I'd be like, and it's all the time. It's like I'll start working on something that I think is kind of interesting, and so then I'll, you know, after a couple of weeks, I'll bring in some people. Like, look, here's kind of what I'm thinking about. Like, you know, what do you think? Um, and it helps keep you from getting kind of like stuck, like just staring at some figures okay. and. You know, it helps you kind of like start to kind of trim and, and focus in on like what's the fundamental question that's interesting, you know. And so I guess that's you know that's how I work is I'm just very collaborative. Like yeah. I need I need people like to work with you know who can help me really hone my ideas. And see, that's why I think one of the strengths of the interdisciplinarity is is that those people are going to come with different ways of viewing the world. Like you said, you're yeah. about you know, drought, you're going to have like five people that can do it five different ways, five different mm-hmm. perspectives, and they can just make something click in your head just talking to them. So. Yeah, I think so. And, you, and you know, I mean, I think the kind of, I mean, probably the most interdisciplinary stuff I do is, is phenology. And so, yeah. um, you know, a lot of that work, like, is working with, 
like real like people like people coming from like real hardcore like ecology departments right so yeah. you know these are like biology departments that like you know are doing like com- you know like high level community population ecology yeah. um and so it's you know it can be really challenging to like work with them um, those people are challenging for multiple reasons <laughs> we openly give them a hard time so it's okay. um but it's good for you like you know because like in our own field right like we sort of take some things for granted right so yeah. like you know I could list off like a bunch of data sets that if I was talking to like a climatologist, they would know exactly I know what I was talking about, about yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and you would probably be like, I, what is this? Like, yeah, it's like when I started talking about satellites to people and they're like, wait, wait, hold on. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What's right? that? Yeah. Um, and so I think, I think in some ways, like with these interdisciplinary collaborations, it kind of forces you to slow down a little bit and like, oh, that's a good point. You know, um, like yeah. explain to people like, okay, this is the data set we should use. Like, here's why, but also here's kind of, you know, here's what we should think about when we're using this data set for, for this kind of purpose, right? Like, yeah. you know, like, so we, you know, we, we dealt with this a lot when we had, you know, we're doing this kind of global phenology analysis and we were like, okay, well, you know, we want to do some climate sensitivity stuff. Like, what's the best temperature data set to use? Okay. Right? And like, we're like, okay, well, we can construct our own, but it's going to take a lot of time and, and be a lot of work. Or, you know, we could use this other data set that's already kind of been constructed and, and homogenized, but we just need to be careful of X, Y, and Z. Okay. You know? And so, you know, these sorts of collaborations, I think, really, you know, foster, like, this kind of deep thinking about, about some of the stuff. And, and, you know, I just find it very satisfying. Yeah. So... So what is next for you now that you've completed this? Is there another big project that you already have in the future? Yeah, so, you know, we're doing a lot of work, um, you know, still on climate change and drought. And and a lot of what we're kind of really focused on now is this idea of, you know, I mean, droughts happen naturally and normally, right? So what are those events going to look like in a warmer world, right? And so as an example of the project that we're, you know, it's in review right now is, you know, there's a big drought in the 1950s in the western U.S., Okay. This is one of the worst droughts in the region over the last 200 years. It's the, the drought of record in Texas that they use for all their drought planning. So this is post-Dust Bowl, then? Yeah, so this is like... like how long? It's about 10 years, about 1948 really? to 1957. Yeah, it's, uh, it, well, it's, it's funny, right, because everybody thinks about the Dust Bowl. Yeah, yeah. But the Dust Bowl was much more centered on, like, the central and northern plains. Okay. Whereas this 1950s drought was, like, you know, the southwest, Mexico, Texas, and, oh, okay. and even into the southeast. It had very big impacts, and in some ways, it was as impactful as the as the Dust Bowl. But so, um, basically, what we've been able to do is to replicate the conditions that caused that drought in a model, um, but in a model where the world is three degrees warmer oh, than it was during during that event. And so, this okay. gives us a way to like compare these two droughts and be like, okay, if if this drought happened again, which it could, because we understand the dynamics very yeah. well there's the natural variability you know how much worse would things be oh okay you know um and so you know it, it kind of like feeds into this kind of planning and this and kind of addressing this question of like you know are the ways you know will, will the ways that we've dealt with droughts in the past be sufficient for dealing with droughts in the future so i have a question for you on this is i just finished up teaching a class at the university of richmond and one of the final uh, lessons was on natural hazards. And so one of the things I had them do was go read some of the IPCC reports and some sections from the Soccer 2 reports. 
and I in class just gave them like each pair. Like, oh, I think I saw that exercise. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah very so cool. I gave them like you get a natural hazard, you get a natural hazard, and you're like Oprah. And then they had like 20 minutes to figure out what is this going to look like in the next 30 years, like high and low severity. And one of the students, about halfway through, everyone was like, you know, circling their section on the board and color coding whether this is, you know, much more high risk or low risk or no risk. He was like, dude, this is scary. Like, this is really scary. And um, it occurred to me as someone who, you know, kind of works as one of these, I mean, it is something that's huge impacts, right? Like, how do you, because you do a lot of, like, outreach and communication to people, the gloom and doom aspect of it. Do you, yeah. do you think about that or kind of modulate that or just yeah. be honest and open? No, but, uh, you know, so I think a lot about it, right? And, you know, when I do outreach, you know, it's, I think it's important and I think it's good for me too because it, it kind of personalizes this, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I sit in, you know, an office in Manhattan, like, doing this work and, and, you know, it's very rarely that I'm actually, like, you know, there in the thick of it, you know, seeing yeah. this sort of stuff happen. And so it's it's important for me to try to stay grounded and realize that this is not just games on a computer. This is like yeah. real world, you know, stuff. And so what I usually tell people is is a couple things. So, you know, one, we, you know, one, climate change is not pass-fail, yeah. right? So, you know, it's not that like either we do this by this date or the game is over, right? The yeah. future is going to be some balance between adaptation and mitigation right the more we can prevent uh the less we'll have to adapt yeah right um and you know so so there's that um you know the second thing is that we do have a lot of strategies to deal with hazards and and droughts right um you know we can pump groundwater you know, for example, like California did, you know, um, when, when they ran out of their reservoirs during the, um, the most recent drought. Or, you know, we can make decisions about the crops we grow or we can build desalinization plants or we can, um, you know, increase water efficiency and, um, and conservation. Um, and fundamentally, those are all value judgments, yeah. right? I mean, there's no, there's no scientific reason that one is you know, better than the other. It's simply that, you know, this is decisions that people need to make. But they, they're out there. You know, these are these are things. And so what I always say is simply like, you know, like the Western Union is not it's not going to turn into some Mad Max kind of hellscape, right? <laughs> um, but you know, we can't we can't keep doing things the same way we've been doing things, and expect everything to be the same. Okay. Right. You know, is that. You know, the, the only the only real losing move is to pretend that nothing is changing and that we can keep on as we've been keeping on, right? Because that yeah. kind of ignores the problem. Um, um, and beyond that, it's a matter of like you know deciding, you know, what do we yeah. think, what do we think is important, and and how do we as a society kind of move towards that? This is good to hear because I started this. I wanted to do this thing in class because we had done something previously, and they were all like harping like personal choice and you know kind of this like neoliberalism stuff they've you know, been shoved down their throats for 20 years and like that I don't personally believe in because like honestly yeah yeah you should make personal changes in your life that will better the world and whatnot but also like it doesn't matter because all that has to come top down from government and, and for the, the most part and this is know. the thing right it's so. like you know it's it's you know it's the same thing with um you know I mean the kind of best allegory for all this is probably um uh, the Montreal Protocol and and, mm. and you know ozone and CFCs right which you know, 
I mean, was a little bit easier to deal with. But it was the same sort of thing as you needed to have some kind of top-down international right. agreement on saying, like, okay, you know what? Yeah. We are phasing out CFCs. Like, yeah. that's, this is what we're doing. This is what we globally has decided is, is important, right? And that's what needs to happen um, kind of at a higher government level. Yeah. And I think they can take it like a variety of forms, but, like, it needs to be, you know, it's the top level that has the just a kind of scale, right? Exactly. Like that's where yeah. you can kind of nudge enough people over, right. you know, instead of like, you know, going to every single person in the world and saying like, hey, <laughs> you know, you should you should recycle, all right? Or like you should buy a hybrid or you should bike more, right? You know, that's not gonna that's not gonna do like, it. Let's do meat this Monday and then yeah, it's and gonna solve everything, which is fine. You know, and all that stuff is fine, were, like you know, quickly if it gets people a little bit more engaged and thinking about the yeah, problem. That part, um, yeah, agreed. But that's not gonna that's oh, no. not gonna solve the issue. Yeah. So what does the, the rest of the conference look like for you? I know we have one more full day here. Um, probably lunch with an old postdoc. Um, nice. And then maybe the Smithsonian. <laughs> <laughs> have you, well, you've been in the Smithsonian before. Do you have a favorite museum? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I mean, I like the Natural History Museum. Do you? Yeah. yeah I, I you know. Yeah. I'm like you know I was a very stereotypical boy who loved dinosaurs, so, yes, and I've never I've never quite lost that. So the the whale like is still like my favorite thing in there. It's uh, it was good. I hit that one up yesterday, and then finally realized it was the second or third national gallery building that I had never been in that had like the two paintings that I've looked here like looked for here for like years. Oh, cool! So I got to see the Wayne Thiebaud like cake painting that I love. So it was pretty exciting. So Jackson Pollock. So. Oh, very. I nice. was trying to push people yesterday like please go also to art museums if you have time because they're great. Hirschhorn, eh, it's all right. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like the rotating exhibit on Hirschhorn last time I was there. So, so, cool. That's cool. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I said, please follow Ben at, at Dusty Bowl on Twitter. Do you have anything else you would like to throw into the people or anything? That's yeah. about it. My book comes out, on drought comes out in yeah. March or April. So, is there like a pre-order thing that we can like jack this thing up, like the New York <laughs> Times bestselling list? I, th- I mean, I, so I think it's it's listed in the catalog at the Columbia Press. Um, cool. Thing, so okay, um, we'll, we'll put a link on show page. Okay, I appreciate so, it. Ben, thanks very much. Thank That's you. Good.